0: And welcome to High Energy Health. I'm your host, Dawson Church. And each week on the show, I bring you information, I bring you inspiration, and I really encourage you to practice, 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 practice. There are so many great ideas you'll be exposed to here on High Energy Health, and they are going to give you, I give you, really good insights into what you might do. And the crucial thing is then implementing those in your life. So as you listen to these ideas, as you're inspired by these guests make a plan, keep notes, take action steps and implement these things in your life. They can make a huge difference in your well-being, your feeling, your mood, your pain. It's hard to find anything that isn't affected by the kinds of shifts, the kinds of practices that these shifts, that these practices produce in your your life. I know we have a team of volunteers working right now on a massive project and in 2014 we had volunteers who looked all the way through, all through the published literature of science to find all of the studies that that measure the results of energy healing. And there are about 600 studies. And if you look at that list, it's at energymedicinebibliography.com. So that was the list as of 2014. But that was a long time ago. So we've had a, another group of volunteers who've been combing through the scientific literature and updating that list. And we'll be publishing that again, that soon. And we're going to have At this point, over 3,000 studies there, and they are of everything from autoimmune conditions to pain to psychological issues like anxiety, depression, phobias, and PTSD. It's amazing what energy, what shifts in consciousness can produce in terms of your health and well-being. So do use the ideas on the show. They really can move the needle in your life. My guest today is Dr. Kristen... Lee. She's an award-winning behavioral science and leadership professor. She is has been teaching at Northwestern University in Boston and Providence, Rhode Island. She also is a comedian. And so she brings that that wry humor to her writing and her work. But she also has been helping people with all of those issues with mental health and seeing what is effective in terms of of shifting people's transient states. And also her new book is called Worth the Risk. And then she talks about microdosing on small acts that can really shift your life in a big way. It is such a pleasure to have you here. Welcome, Kristen.
1: Thank you, Justin. It's a pleasure to be here with you and your audience.
0: Yeah and I so like your approach because many of us think we have to make huge changes in our lives for us to get better and you say no you don't you have to make small ones when did you first come across coming to that insight that it could be those little microdoses that make a difference
1: well, I've always been so curious about behavior change. I think any of us in the work that we do, the work of wanting to elevate healing and elevate the human condition, we know, like you said, we have this amazing dearth of science available to us to leverage. But I, I got really curious about what makes people actually be able to, you know, gain traction, and momentum, and to sustain that. And what I saw in my life as a psychotherapist and as a human resilience researcher Is that change never, you know, happens in one fell swoop. I think that it's pitched that way in society, especially when the cumulative effect of all the stress becomes very erosive. We think we need a big redo, but ultimately we know that small strategic steps towards courage and facing what needs to be faced can really nourish us and help us get the gumption to build our resilience.
0: What small step do you take that really moved the needle for you? Well, the I'll get this,
1: Yeah, I think um, just to start, I think that, you know, I was the first in my family to attend college. I'm a first generation student and professor. And I've always studied behavior science. I've always been involved in mental health, outpatient and macro work. And for me, I think I like girded a little bit of my own personal lived experience with mental health issues. So for me, a a risk worth taking or a way to sort of like put myself to task based on the discoveries I was making in science and in my own research was to just be more candid, to be more candid about our shared humanity, my own lived experiences. And in doing that, I think at first I had this level of trepidation, but ultimately it led to deeper, more meaningful relationships and, and a sense of psychological safety that I hadn't known possible.
0: So mention just one particular event where you were candid, where maybe it was a big risk, maybe you were already having to take a deep breath, and you felt vulnerable and exposed and did it and it worked out.
1: Well, I feel like it was definitely the microdosing bravery approach that I advocate for. So. It might have started with telling a trusted colleague or friend or family member what the duality of my experiences were. And that then created, I think, a sense of internal permission or something going off inside that knew that it would it's okay not to be okay, but you don't have to stay stuck with that. And I think that led to the further actions. And I'll tell you, so at Northeastern where I teach in Boston, we have I had a presentation and I had my PowerPoint, you know, slides, I had my script and Then, you know, it was it was a snowy Monday in New England in April, which is kind of like paradoxical. And at first it was just me and the pizza guy in the back of the room. And I'm thinking (laughs) no one's going to show up. This is very awkward. <laughs> and then right at the last minute, swarms of people came in. It was my bosses, leaders at the institution, my colleagues, my students, alumni. It was like this beautiful cadre of people in my life coming out to show solidarity and support. So, of course, this was so moving to me. And I don't know if it was the smell of the pizza or just everything. <laughs> I just decided to go rogue. I went off script and I said, look, this is what my brain does. The perfectionist in me. You know, I talked about my anxiety and my tendencies towards overthinking. And Dawson, at the end of it, I thought, are people going to think, you know, something different? Are they going to check my work in a different way? What have I just done? And then instead, as I came back into the office, my colleagues were saying things like, you know, that's exactly how I feel. I'm so glad you said it. And it just again invited a different level of camaraderie and connection that became so protective. But I will say it wasn't just that one, you know, pizza moment, you know, like walking through the air, having this effect on me to be brave. It was really um small strategic steps I had taken over time. Disclosures in my writing, in my public platform, again with people that I felt safe with. And as that happened, again, it gave me that awareness that I didn't have to hide, I didn't have to pretend or fake it till I made it kind of thing, that it was important for me to be vocal about these things, not only to liberate myself from my own fears, but hopefully have an influence on others to do the same.
0: That means me raise an interesting question, which is, when. Is it healthy to do that? And when is it reinforcing your old patterns of behavior? I'm thinking, for example, of people who come in with pan therapy stories. And I teach a lot of a lot of virtual and online classes, and mm-hmm. people often come in and they have their therapy story and they say, "Oh, I'm in your class now, but I was with a family th- systems therapist for the last seven years, and before that mm-hmm. I did Gestalt therapy, and before that it was psychodynamic therapy." And they have their their therapy story really neatly laid out, and th- so they're just rehearsing their distress. And I I want When is it healthy to raise our distress? And when are we uh, just reinforcing those patterns in our thinking and behavior and lives? I
1: think it's such a provocative question and an important one, right? I think trying to decipher our risk thresholds and like where do we kind of push ourselves and where do we go back into automated modes, I think is something that takes some time and strategy to decipher. What I will say is that we know research really shows that risks can help us to cultivate resilience because they ultimately can help Help us live a life of deeper meaning, value alignment, and purpose also again can cultivate the kinds of relationships that help sustain us through complexity. So I think that our society does do a lot of teaching around curating ourselves or sounding good or coming up with this really great presentation. But I think, especially within therapy or in a safe community or environment, the more we can get to that place of candor in the spirit of curiosity, discovery, unlearning, connecting, liberating, you know, the more we can get comfortable with the uncomfortable and and drill down in those ways, I think it can be very enlivening and elevating for, for all of us. And it helps build that community of co-inspiration, or what I might also call, you know, like help seeking and help giving that our relationships can have that reciprocal effect. And we don't have to feel like we have to have this like, polished curated version of ourselves to feel then (laughs) validated or accepted right
0: (laughs) yeah 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 there is that polished curated self that you you put out there and Job interviews mm-hmm. and on dates and when you yeah. have professional encounters, but I found even even then, for example, when I meet meet colleagues, I meet meet people that are you know, say for example meeting a, a president of a division in the American Psychological Association or someone, mm-hmm. and you want you want to come off as as though you want a crackpot. And <laughs> 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 so you, you have to have the public self, but I found that actually the even in those sorts of situations, that sometimes just just being yourself and and sharing from the heart really is much much more effective at establishing a real relationship then mm-hmm having your best foot forward.
1: I love how you put that, and I think it's a beautiful framing. And I think it's kind of the moment in time we're facing where we're seeing this tremendous level of acuity and mental health crisis across the globe. We're seeing, you know, this great resignation and it, it being called the age of anxiety. So there's an awful lot to be fearful about, but we know what helps us maneuver fear is that sense of community and camaraderie. So I always think too about like my great friendships or people that I just feel like I can like have my hair down with and i think that what maybe prompted our initial bonding was that ability to be frank and to let let some disclosure come out and just show our humanity, I think it's like, it makes for fun, it makes for a great experience. And it's not to say we have to be unprofessional or wear our emotions on our sleeve or like give the play-by-play of our therapy session. But I think if we can allude to our humanity and, you know, our duality, like on one hand, we could be very accomplished and very articulate, and, you know, have all these things on our CV, right? And on the other hand, we could feel like we have no idea what we're doing. (laughs) And, you know, feel like a hot mess or that the other shoe is going to drop. And all those things are true. And that's just, again, part of our human condition, not just sort of like, you know, that 1950s stigmatized, scrutinized mental health condition way of looking at ourselves and one another.
0: You know, levels of anxiety are high. They're high. Objectively, the World Health Organization has measured this. They said that they're much higher than before the pandemic. Uh, referrals to psychiatry have gone up from I think the last WHO figures are from 37% to 62%. So an almost doubling of psychiatric referrals. There really, genuinely is, and measured in this global sense, more more anxiety and more depression. And if you there's a great column in the New York Times recently that said, you think right now is bad? Let's go back 20 years. Went back to the 1990s. Talked about all the scandals and the wars and the issues going on back then and mm-hmm. It said, this is just your subjective experience. It's not objective reality. And yet, for some reason, we are taking it. It is harder for us now. We are—we do find mental health breaking down more now than it was before. And I, I'm not trying to understand why. Do you have any insight
1: on that? I, I think it's the question of the moment. And, and to your point, the World Health Organization was warning long before the pandemic about burnout, you know, when they reclassified it from its prior health classification, to a condition of modern living and of the workforce. So I think there's been a lot to be concerned about through the ages. But I think to your point, it is important to use critical thinking and to be aware that what comes through our feeds and the constant news cycle, and in our social media feeds, it's very amplified. You know, obviously, there's a lot of sociopolitical strife and polarization and even radicalization. And I think it's always interesting when people say, like, how do, you know, comparatively across generation and culture and time and space, is it worse now? And as you know, I write about this very candidly in Worth the Risk. As I wrote the book, I was holding a lot of space, you know, for my grandma, Jenny. So she lived through the Spanish flu pandemic. And in fact, she was nine years old when her own father passed away. She was then forced to quit school and work for the family, she and her siblings. And I was very close with her. She was a beautiful poet and writer. She never had access to formal education, but she demonstrated a lot of resilience in her life. And I think about that. I think like, you know, is it, was it more difficult then? without that constant blaring access to news and you know just that whole like state of consciousness that that brings or was it more difficult for her then because there was no such thing as therapy and there was no like safety in finding therapy it just wasn't a thing right and so i do think it's important that we try to contextualize ourselves in a more expansive way to know that we don't want to minimize or oversimplify this moment in time that is quite dangerous to our psyches and souls and our bodies. There is a lot at hand. But having said that, we have opportunities and resources that we can leverage that help us stay and do well. And I think that's really the whole premise of this notion of risk taking and, you know, putting ourselves up out there and mustering courage in the face of this tremendous adversity to know again that it's not new under the sun per se and that, you know, what's being reported is also, you know, driving up ratings and metrics for these news outlets and these entities of social media. So I think we have to put on our critical thinking hat very much at this moment in time because these algorithms are giving us a lot of anxiety and yet it can distract us or derail us from seeing all the beautiful things that are occurring all the opportunities for social change and social impact and for flourishing and like I've been really impacted by your work you know and thinking of integrative health and just you know all the things you're discovering in science and the applications in our life and we just couldn't tap into that you know I've been a practitioner for a long time and I've really started to get involved with that as well over the last few years but there's a lot we can tap into that was just non-existent before even just communities of candor and and openness around mental health discussion just didn't exist ten or twenty years ago. It was actually quite opposite. So I think we have to look at all of it. We can't deny the difficulties of our moment, but we also can't deny the opportunities within it.
0: Absolutely. And uh, when those difficulties are most in our minds, just up the dose of all the positive stuff in your life. You can literally do that. And one of the, one of the one practices that Andrew Newberg talks about in his book, "How Enlightenment Changes Your Brain," is how his seen in his MRI scans that it's voluntary that you can literally up level your level of positive emotions. You can literally sit there and and feel it stronger. So you feel that positive feeling. You've now spent time with positive media, positive people, positive music, positive inputs, and now you feel that way. And what is found in his MRI studies is you can just say, I'm four out of 10. I'm going to raise it all the way up to a 10 out of 10. And you just do it. And then you can just pop it up a whole other level in just a few moments like that. So it is possible for us to really find those resources and then dramatically up-level our mood using them.
1: Like you, I'm similarly captivated by all this research that really shows evidence of what what they're calling positive emotion repertoires, right? Creating those reprieves or toggling out of stress and creating these moments of awe and gratitude. And... Enjoy, and, and that's even part. You know, you mentioned about my my life in comedy and as a performing artist, and that was something that kind of emerged, especially you know, in the face of the pandemic. Because my typical practices of cultivating joy or you know emotional regulation, person again who you know has this lived experience with anxiety and depression tendencies, I have like quite a regimen already. I have like a, a pretty large repertoire of things I, I went to, but I found that in acting, that creative spirit. And taking the risk to perform and, you know, kind of rework the, you know, the material I was working with It's so heavy and so serious in a different way. It brought levity and healing in my life and then hopefully for those um, that have participated in my comedy community.
0: I want to hear about that repertoire after our break. I want to hear what you use personally and do personally. We'll go to a break right now. Before I do, let me just give you Kristen's website. Her website is, Kristen, normally I have that at the top of my screen over here and I don't have it here. What is your best website?
1: Sure, it's com, and my name is spelled E-N-L-E-E.
0: Okay, so it's Kristen Lee. There's me being self-disposingly imperfect. I normally have yeah, that at the top of my screen and it's not there. Oh no, no we'll <laughs> never no, we'll, we'll, we'll listen to my show again. Okay. The sky is falling. <laughs> <laughs> so com, K-R-I-S-T-E-N, kristenlee.com. Please stay tuned, we'll be right back after a break. Hello, and welcome back to High Energy Health. I'm your host, Dawson Church. Each week on the show, I bring you wisdom and inspiration from some of the most leading figures in health, education, wellness, and you'll find practices here that you can use and apply in your life. If you'd like a copy of my newest book, it's called Bliss Brain. You can get it free at blissbrain.com. Also, make sure you download the eight meditations at blissbrain.com and use them. Because there's a study coming out in a journal called Innovations in Clinical Neuroscience in a couple of months of the people who use those meditations. And it shows significant brain change in a month. They're changing the anatomy of their brains in a month of using those meditations. So those are free at the brain.com. And then for more on Kristen's work, go to her website, Kristenlee.com. I'll spell it out: kristen Lee dot com for more about her and her new book, which is called Worth the Risk. Also, please do go on Amazon if you like the books and give them a review. Review them. Review Worth the Risk when you read the book. Let us know how much you like it. If if an author's on there and you appreciate their work, leave them a review. It makes a huge difference to their rankings at Amazon. So it's really worth you doing that for somebody whose work you appreciate. It's a way of giving back. So go ahead and go ahead and click that that button and write a brief review. It really does help. So Kristen, you mentioned earlier resilience and just give us a profile of the resilient person, the unresilient person, and then how we can move from one to the other.
1: Sure. I think sometimes when we think about what something is, it, we can start by thinking about what it is isn't or the ways that it's pitched that are erroneous and unhelpful. So I think resilience has often been pitched as like, a matter of sheer will, or I was born this way, or I wasn't, or if, you know, I've got to be super strong. But what research really shows is that resilience is a process, not a trait. It's a process of positive adaptation. So when I think about resilience, I think about one of my favorite artists, Georgia O'Keeffe. And I actually started Worth the Risk with a quote of hers, that I really think it embodies resilience. She said, that I've been absolutely terrified every single day of my life, but I've never let it stop me from doing the single thing I wanted to do. And I, I, it's like the gritty gumption. Like I'm like, oh, this is so great. And I kind of got obsessed with her life story. I've always liked her art very much, but it seemed that one of the key characteristics that allowed her to lead a life that embodied resilience and meaning was her ability to take both art, artistic and personal risks. And that allowed her to bond in different ways. She used humor. And it just, I think that her example, her life example is one that is extremely powerful. I think that people think the resilient person or the risk-taking person is the one who's like gonna bet it all at the Bellagio or jump out of a plane or be this like grit boss, this big Mufasa kind of person. And I think that that is a way that is You know, misguides us and disillusions us. Resilience is always within reach, you know, and as you know, think of your work in terms of, again, brain plasticity, adaptation, how we can change the brain. It comes through, again, facing our discomfort. It comes through conscious efforts and activities and relationships that allow us to be more vulnerable even, you know, to acknowledge our follies and our challenges and our deficits all while also being able to leverage our strengths as well as people. So I think that it's just pitched in such a grand, more is more way in the world. But resilient can be quiet. It can be introverted. It can be neat. But it's not, again, a persona. It's a process. And I think that's the key distinction. It's something that we dabble with. And maybe we take a few steps forward and ooh, we got to digest it. It's a little bit too much. It's overstimulating. And then we we hit it again and we go slowly and strategically to sustain ourselves.
0: So what's a microdose activity you can do to just in a, a small way and perhaps a daily way build resilience?
1: I think about this all the time because of my teaching work and my touch with organizations and leaders around the world. I who I think are much very apt to give help but have a hard time asking for it. I think many of us especially in our kinds of disciplines when you have a, a knowledge set it's sometimes really hard to admit or acknowledge our struggles or vulnerabilities or our questions. I think that is one of the most pivotal microdoses we can take. And again, it could start, you know, within the context of just one relationship between one other person where you make a revelation or a disclosure or you just say, you know, I'm having a hard time. I'm not OK right now. I need help with this. Or it could even just be that you need to delegate something to someone. But I think that piece is very difficult for many of us to acknowledge, you know, that we actually need help too. So I would give that as an example, a pivotal example, especially right now where we're marinating in a lot of trauma, a lot of uncertainty and challenge. If we can get more comfortable advocating for ourselves and saying what we need, even naming our difficult emotions, modern brain science says that helps us to develop emotional granularity. And that ability to get, you know, more momentum around those
0: challenges we first face. Mm. You, you said emotional granularity. Is that what you said? Yes. Yeah. Huh. Yes. Yeah. So
1: it was a term coined by one of my dear colleagues at Northeastern, Lisa Feldman Barrett. And, you know, so much of her research really points to this process of naming difficult emotions in the way of, as we develop that literacy and language around us, it It can serve as a catalyst for healing. Studies have really shown that the power of language and not hiding out or, you know, trying to sort of like sugarcoat our difficulties rather than we confront them, that can actually lead us to a path of healing. And, you know, again, that emotional regulation that is so protective and important for us as people.
0: So let's talk about that emotional regulation and why it's so important and how you can regulate your emotions. If you haven't been and have been doing it, Already. So maybe your emotions, they're, they're already unruly. The Buddha said emotions arise, emotions subside. Emotions often just make nonsense of our intentions. You have an intention to do something and then an emotion arises and not feel good. We don't do it. Let's talk about emotion regulation.
1: Well, it's very, very basic. And I think what's beautiful about the discoveries of modern brain science is it comes back to the essential practices of lifestyle medicine, which is just a fancy way of saying, you know, how we're paying mind to our sleep our nutrition, hydration, time in nature, our time connected and not isolated or lonely. So those, I think, are, you know, the critical aspects. If we're sleep deprived, if our, you know, our blood sugar is all dysregulated, those basic bodily things. Again, Lisa feldman calls it the body budget. And I write a lot about this in Worth the Risk, like how do we make investments in that Ultimately, if we're just, you know, depleted and burnt out and just running on fumes all the time, emotional regulation becomes much harder to reach. So that's always a critical leg. And then, you know, from there, regulating our emotions again is paying attention, you know, to our our habits of mind, our mindsets, our habits, our behaviors, what kind of comes through and realizing that emotions aren't fat, they're pattern recognition based on our bodily reserves. And we can, you know, a lot of times just sort of have this automation come up. And I really want to encourage everyone listening as you think about your own, you know, lives and maybe your own automations that come up in your mind's eye. If you're like me, you might be hypercritical of yourself, you might, you know, really be hard on yourself in situations and come to a deep level of personalization. Or you might struggle with other kinds of cognitive distortions. What research really shows is when we can pay attention to that and call it out for what it is, it can help us come to a place of homeostasis quicker, a place of realizing, you know, this is just my mind turning tricks right now. And it's not the hard evidence. And so maybe there's an activity that can cause me to have a shift in my brain. It could be stepping away from a hard conversation or getting off the screen and going breathing the air outside, or just having a nourishing meal or a hearty laugh with a good friend. All those things can be sources of recalibration. So yeah, that regulation relies
0: on- so find, find ones that work for you. And from that list that Mr. just, just gave us, find your leverage points. We're going to have a break right now. Please stay tuned, we'll be right back. You're listening to High Energy Health. We'll be back after a break. Hello and welcome back to High Energy Health. It's a pleasure to have you here, a pleasure to be sharing, also a pleasure just to be giving ourselves a time out for a positive conversation. There are plenty of negative ones you could be listening to right now, and you made the choice to join a positive one. Good for you. And for more on Kristen's work, go to her website, KristenLee.com, K R I S T N L E E, KristenLee.com more on her work and her new book, Worth the Risk. If you'd like a copy of my new book, Bliss Brain, go to blissbrain.com for a free copy, and also for eight free meditation that will support your well being also at blissbrain.com. So that list you were giving us of ways to support emotion regulation is so powerful. I know for me just going and taking a walk outside in nature for a few minutes is an antidote. It's, it's powerful. You do some stretching, some, some movements, some yoga, some Qigong. What are some of the other ways which we can support ourselves in, in, that, in that physical resources for resilience?
1: Well, as you mentioned, there's so many integrative health practices, so many spiritual practices. And I think the key is that discovery, along the discovery process of what works for any of us to be creative and fun. I think that it's a classic hallmark of adult life to think, oh, you know, I have to do this thing. But when we really want to enact positive behavior change, the science shows we pick things that enliven us that are enjoyable and we, you know, having a good time with it and we see it as calibrating, you know, that that can really help us to stay with it and follow through. And I think our repertoire can change over time. Different seasons of life bring on different opportunities. And I know even a lot of people have told me that through the pandemic, they never realized how many beautiful outdoor spaces they were nearby, that they were able to explore Different parks or different things in their, their local communities. And I think that's a great example of the human spirit, our agility and our ability to make those discoveries over what, you know, helps us be nourished and stay and do well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And parks are a wonderful resource. I know that near me, there are two parks, like two blocks away each. And um, during the pandemic, we saw lots more people visiting them. And a study yeah. came out that year as well, showing the same epigenetic effects from time in an urban park. As in the wilderness. So you don't have to go out into distant wilderness. You can just visit an urban park right near you and feel those effects in your body and be experiencing those epigenetic shifts.
1: That's right. And so many wonderful studies have emerged around green space and mental health, you know, being a major impact. And like you said, you pick the spaces that are accessible and available and really make use of them. I wanted to tell you, too, one of the things that I hold as a sacred practice in my own calibration, my own emotional regulation, which is writing. And I know what a surprise the person who has a new book she likes to write, but it's deeper than that for me. And what I want to also encourage the audience on it in my students that I've served over the last 13 years and many of those that I've served in therapy for the 20 years that I worked in outpatient mental health a lot of people have trauma around writing. I personally had like math trauma in school. I never felt like I was good at math. I used to get yelled at because I was really strong in my other subjects. I think my math teachers thought I was slacking. But in a similar way, a lot of people have writing trauma. They've been told they're not good writers or they've been forced to write things maybe they don't find a lot of enjoyment in. So I would encourage everyone to as a wellness practice, you know, there's so, such a value in writing out, again, naming our emotions or writing creative material or writing for social impact. And I know that that for me over time, I hold that as a piece of my identity, you know, like a part of who I am as a writer, as an artist. And that gives me a lot of meaning and joy. But the process of writing, there's just something about it that creates that psychological distance from the issues we're grappling with that I think is very powerful. So I, I feel like a lot of people will say, oh, I bought a journal and then I didn't write it. In it, or I've always wanted to write a blog or a book. So this is that nudge to anyone out there that has gotten that knock at the door, but maybe kind of like ignored it. To maybe consider that maybe like fifteen minutes of free writing in a day um, to help you sort of you know just see things in a new light. I think it could be very very beneficial.
0: Absolutely, Socrates two thousand years ago said the unexamined life is not worth living, and uh, a yeah. journal is a great way of reflecting on your life. And then the other thing that that you have added to this mix is comedy and mm-hmm. I, I have a lot of respect on, on that because I, I have to say this is one of my my huge deficits in life i i, I just am really bad at telling jokes and uh, so <laughs> i've learned not not to do it to, to spare my audience that and so you 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 though have have found that this this disability this as well and how did that happen and what's go, going on with it now
1: well, you're so pleasant to speak with. I feel like I've been laughing and joyful this whole conversation. But I think, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you have a wonderful laugh. So, I I think that ultimately, um, you know, i spent so much time grappling with issues of mental health in my personal life and in my public work. And I often called to speak to hard topics. You know, the intersections of mental health and disparities, oppression, discrimination, and violence. So the work has always been very heavy and very serious. And I always felt that humor and laughter are so healing and they're such a part of human connection and also critical thinking. You know, it's great teaching methodology and great pedagogy to weave humor in. It's just, it really can diffuse tensions and help us to come to a place of learning and and personal connection. So I've always been obsessed with it. I'm obsessed with, with comedy and I have long been that. And then years ago, I started to read like every memoir I could get my hands on for comedians, right? I just like found all this material and I found it like a good reprieve from the heaviness of my work. And then I just decided, you know, I'm gonna take this risk of performing. I'm gonna flip my model, which is usually serious with some fun added. And instead I flipped it to, you know, more fun with a a serious and positive underlying message to destigmatize mental health to create conversations about mental health. And it's been a really fun learning experience. I had sabbatical last semester, so I had more time to perform and train. And then I launched a comedy mental health show called Cracking Up, where therapy meets comedy. (laughs) It's so much fun. We host it at the Lyric Stage Company in Boston. And it's just such a moment of community to get people together for an hour and a half off their phones, in full presence. Speaking of mindfulness, comedy performance is very much a mindfulness practice. You have to be in the now. And to see people come together and have that kind of joy and that reprieve is everything. And then we raise funds for the National Alliance on Mental Illness and a coma Project, which focuses on BIPOC mental health access. So there's a deep meaning to it all. But for me, just as a practice, humor helps us to reframe things. It helps us to stay agile. It helps to see the absurdities of life and to call them out. And I think sometimes comedy has a bad rap because obviously things can be controversial. There's a whole lot, right, that transpires in that realm. But I think for people out there, even that are practitioners or in healing and human work, or just teaching work or parenting, using humor as a method to like convey important lessons and to support and encourage, to diffuse hard situations. It's a beautiful mechanism.
0: Wow, what a wonderful way to see it. And then you're right about mindfulness and just being there in the present moment and putting everything else aside and really being present. So uh, that a way to enter that space and then invite your audience into that space as well. That's a very, very powerful invitation there. And you can see more about Kristen's work at her website, kristenlee.com. Her new book is called Worth the Risk. We'll be right back after a break. Hello, and welcome back to High Energy Health. I'm your host, Dawson Church, and as you can tell, I'm having a really good time today, and I hope you are as well, and I want you to have a good time every day. Just use all of these wonderful ideas we've been sharing, and this really vital, critical idea that you can have a microdose of well-being, a tiny little lack that's going to shift your reality. You don't have to create some sort of massive shift in your life or have some big experience to change. You can do it in a series of very, very small steps, very, very small habits. For more on Kristen's work, go to her website, kristenlee.com. And for my new book, Bliss Brain, go to the website, blissbrain.com. I want you to have a wonderful day today and set up the conditions for you to have a wonderful day in your life each day. And it's largely a matter of your consistent practices. So practice all the things we're advocating here on this show. So this whole idea of comedy and performance as mindfulness is a wonderful idea. And how else can we bring mindfulness into our everyday lives?
1: I think it's it's a moment that begs us to do so, because I think so many times we stew in anticipatory anxiety, like what's about to come to the next, you know, like what's coming around the corner, for example. Or we can live in past regret and ruminate over the things that have transpired. Mindfulness, you know, is that beautiful moment where we can just be in the now. And in Worth the Risk, I talk about the difference between a what is life versus a what if life. So a what is life is mindfulness. It's radically accepting what is true, what is in the moment, what is possible. And the what if life is again, just kind of you know having mental gymnastics over what if the pandemic hadn't happened and what if my spouse hadn't walked out on me or what if my child didn't blow up on me yesterday or in in you know that kind of headspace the what ifs can lead to great peril and strife so you know for all of us to see you know what what brings us to attention it could be something joyful like humor it could be again writing or time in nature I also like to play basketball. That can just help me get into a certain zone. So any of us just finding those reprieve things that draw our attention to the moment to be able to accept what is true and what is possible and what joy we can cultivate is, is known to be amongst the most protective things we can do towards our well-being.
0: Absolutely. So we're gonna take a tiny unscheduled break right now and I want you to grab something to write with. You, right now, this thing, right now. Grab something to write with. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: write down
1: three things
0: Make Kristen's advice. Write down three things you can do. She mentioned really simple things that with everybody's a power to do, like going and shooting a few hoops of basketball. That's something that we can all do. You can go throw a frisbee, you can go throw a tennis ball against a wall, you can do anything like that. Earlier today, I had a nine-minute break between meetings. I had nine minutes. It was nine minutes while I ran outside into the sunshine, grabbed a big rubber band, and spent the time doing band exercises. So just anything you can do, what will you do to support your well-being? Write down three things. right now, got them, know what they are, and then those are the things you can make a commitment to. So put that piece of paper or put that screen on your phone someplace. You will see it. Put it someplace you will see it regularly throughout the day. Make it your screensaver <laughs> yep, yep. and do those little tiny microdose activities. They really can make a difference. And then you talk in the book, too, about your personal legend. That's a really powerful idea of our own archetypal myth. Go and share that concept and how it can really boost our well-being.
1: Well, anyone that knows me knows I'm obsessed with Paulo Coelho and the Alchemist book. And it's one that I've used a lot in my teaching practice. And I've probably given like everyone I know a copy of the book, but he's the original framer of this personal legend. And what it means is discovering our purpose and our identities in life. What is, what are our value set? And what is the mission that we're, we are to carry out in our life? And what I found in, in my own writing and research process and what science really shows is when we lead that values aligned life when we move away from the me, to the we, when it's not just about personal growth for the sake of self, but for social impact and social contribution and social change, that's where we really get tremendous momentum. And I think so many things can divert us in a culture of, you know, over, I call it the cult of overachievement in the book. Everything is so grandiose and we think more is more. But again if we just take those small steps to living out our true vision and values and purpose we will really find you know greater measures of joy and well-being in our lives.
0: And what's for somebody who hasn't thought about that or pondered it or gone on a retreat to really dive deep into it what's a small step what's a microdose you can do to get started on that process?
1: I think it's just discovering what do you like? Like what are the things you're drawn to reading about or the activities or people that inspire you? Look for the inspiration and just look even like I look back to my childhood. I was spending most of the time like writing stories, jokes, poems, and teaching my stuffed animals. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, and playing basketball. So all the things yeah. I like now, look back to your childhood spirit and invoke that and see where that fits now wherever you're situated in your development.
0: Find your childhood spirit wherever you are now in your development. Better that is a great way to do it. One of the cool pieces of research over the last few years is that, that children laugh on average 300 times a day, adults laugh on average 20 times a day. And I think that going back and living life with that childhood acceptance of what is and, and seeing the funny and the humor and the wonder of, of everything, living in awe is able to shift us in that way. And I, I, love, I love to see people upping the number, the people who are laughing 50 times a day or 100 times a day. Getting back to where they were when they were three. <laughs> that's right.
1: Well, laughter is contagious, just like germs and fear and hate yeah. spread. So does joy and laughter. Even your laugh—it makes me laugh. So yeah. that's what we're here for. That's what we're yeah. here for. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, laughter is contagious, and, and positive emotions are contagious. Negative emotions are contagious as well, but mm-hmm. positive emotions are more contagious, according to some really great research by the people who did the framing framing of heart study so you want to be one of those agents of positive contagion and then it bounces back and it comes comes back to you again and so i'm really curious as to where you see yourself going in the next while like what's your new direction what's making you really buzz with passion at the moment Kristen?
1: i would say it's like all the things i've mentioned throughout this beautiful discussion with you you know the the writing and the performance and the teaching and the learning and the co-inspiration just the ability right now to Be responsive to the grave needs at hand. I don't take any of that lightly, but I do believe so much in the process of resilience being cultivated through candor and community and through consciousness. So anything just to keep invite these opportunities. And I'm very relationship driven and oriented. So. Building relationships and community around these ideas, I think we can discover so much and get to a better place together.
0: Building relationship and community is, is so important and that we reinforce each other that way. So you find people who are in, on the same track you're, you're on, and especially finding people who are at the same, are at the same, I was gonna say, level of consciousness. It's not a little bit exclusive when I say it that way, but people who, who share a high energy with you. And I know spending time with them is really encouraging and nurturing so that yeah that is a great way to do it so find a way how can you build community how can you find people who will support you in this quest and reinforce each other and help reduce that emotional contagion together so that's that's a good thing to think about as you as you ponder Kristen's suggestion over here and so just in the last couple of minutes just rapid fire any other suggestions you have for these kinds of practices that will reinforce our well-being?
1: I think, you know, I, most of my sessions, they all start with you are not. So I just want to encourage the audience to remember you are not your fear. Mm -hmm. You are not your automations, You are not the likes on your feed. You are not your accomplishments. You are not your trauma, right? We're not prisoners. So just reminding us like to avoid internalizing these negative messages and a very hyper competitive global market where there's a lot of pressure to like, you know, be human Doings not human beings. So I just want to encourage everyone, you know, wherever you're at, even if you're flooded and saturated with immense fear and you don't feel resilience and reach that recovering and that healing is always possible. And it's again, that small step of just reaching out, acknowledging, you know, there's room to grow and then knowing what that can invite in such a dynamic way as you get traction with that. So I just would encourage that it doesn't have to again be this major, you know, jump out of a plane moment, but think about what is possible. And I think, again, your, your prompts today, you were so, I, I brought out my clipboard when you said that I was like, I'm going to write things down. <laughs> 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 receiver in me. But Uh, just really look to like what is possible and what can you work with and be more self-compassionate and humane with ourselves. I think there's just a lot of pressure these days, but we can, I think, come to a better place when we're more compassionate.
0: So compassion, self-love and make that yours. Take that suggestion take it to heart and be there. Thank you for being here. Thanks for being part of this wonderful conversation. Kristen, thank you for your great work. I'm honored and thrilled to share it. And everyone listening, hold that space in your heart of self compassion and make that your reality today and every day. Thanks again.